From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. For decades, Steve Earle has been pushing boundaries with his music. He has just released his 16th studio album, A Return to His Outlaw Country Roots. Steve Earle joins us in front of a live audience for an acoustic set, and we talk about songwriting, finding empathy in political songs, Mexican food, and balancing life on the road. If you don't love doing it, then you're dead. It'll kill you really quickly. Plus, we review the latest from new hip-hop star Vic Mensa. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRigatis. And this week we're going to talk with Steve Earle, who joined us for a special live performance and conversation. But first, let's review some new music. Climb the tallest building and spread your wings. Greg, that is a little bit of Wings, the first single from the first proper debut album by Chicago rapper Vic Mensa. It is called The Autobiography. This is a name we've known for quite some time in Chicago. He is now uh, vaunting out onto the national stage. A lot of fans already, ranging from Chance the Rapper, Kanye West, Jay-Z, to Damon Albarn of Gorillaz. Uh, There's been a lot of buzz for this record. It's been a while in the making. It's got some impressive guests on it from all over the map. Uh, Weezer and The Dream to Chief Keef, Saul Williams, and Pharrell Williams. Uh, Let's get right into the music. I think it's the best way to dig deep into this and why people are excited. This is a track called Memories on 47th Street by Vic Mensa from the debut album, The Autobiography on Sound Opinions. I am the first son of Betsy and Edward Mensa. Made love and made a legend. Woodloon in 47th. Gunshots outside my window. Drug deals out by the sit go. But mama always made sure the truth very by my pillow. My pops was always working. He put the family first. Chicago Saturdays in the park and Sundays in church. Kept me from off the corner with stones and GDs was boring. And kings and BDs and VLs all had dreams of being Jordan, even dope beans was scoring. Swish, trying to be like Mike, shooting through that baseline in their veins, trying to reach that height. I was a little rock star, dressed up like Jimi Hendrix in Hot Park, and the good part in the hood like Kimmy Engines. Teachers didn't see my vision, had me in IEPs, kicked out of kindergarten. They didn't know that I was me. Tattooed my tears, wrote my story in my skin, because even as a boy, I I always knew I'd be the man in my dreams. In my dreams, I saw it in my sleep. Yeah. The city will be mine, I'm mine, I'm mine, I'm mine, I'm mine, I'm mine. Memories on 47th Street.
Memories on 47th Street from Vic Mensa, the new album, The Autobiography. It seems a little odd for a 24-year-old artist to be, uh, you know, <laughs> releasing an album that, that says it's my autobiography. Yeah. But uh, if you're an African-American kid growing up in the streets of Chicago, getting to the age of 24 isn't something that is a given. Uh, and I think some of that is addressed in this record. 47th Street is a key track on this record, Jim, because it, it really starts the whole cycle of his life off. That's yeah. where he grew up. It was a crossroads of sort. He grew up with this uh, relatively affluent biracial family. But at the same time, he was only blocks away from the violence, uh, the gangs in Chicago, and he, yeah. he, he well, saw he, both sides he, of it. He went to one of the city's best high schools, the Whitney Young Magnet School, but he also had friends who got shot in the street. Yeah. He's very open about that on this record. I just bought a Glock because I'm down for some ignorance. My man's just got popped, now I'm down for some ignorance. Um, the record traces an arc of where he got involved starting at the age of about 17 in, in drugs and, and, and a lifestyle that he now looks back on with deep regret. But he was abusing himself, he was abusing others, and it, this is a very emo record, for lack of a better term. He is <laughs> well, laying, Weezer's on it. Yeah, he's laying it all out here. There is no hiding here. There is no, you know, he's pointing some fingers, but most of the finger pointing is, is self-directed. Um, so the honesty on it is brutal sometimes. It's tough to listen to. And at the same time, this sort of genre-free approach to what hip-hop is. I mean, there's a lot of mm-hmm. elements of soul and rock and gospel in this record, which goes back to his earliest days. He, he released a very uh, exciting mixtape in 2013 called The Internet Tape uh, that was kind of scattered but all over the place. Yeah. So many ideas floating around. What's different about this record is, A, you've got this narrative, beginning of his life to where he is now, um, and, and, and shaped uh, to a large degree by the fact that he brought in, as executive producer, No ID, right. who was one of the great producers in, in hip-hop for the last 20, 25 years. He's worked with everybody from all the Chicago greats like Common and Kanye West uh, to, to working on Jay-Z's latest record. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy picks his projects very carefully, uh, and he saw in Mensa somebody that he wanted to work with. So that's an indication of, of what he sees here as an artistic attempt, not just an attempt to, to churn out a bunch of singles. This is an album meant to be listened to and is an album, which is a rare and wonderful thing these days. So he goes through this arc of, of this decadent lifestyle, working through how he got himself to where he is now, to the point where he could think more clearly about himself. And um, there's a point where the, the record pivots on that song, Wings, that we just played, mm-hmm. where he kind of realized, I got to let go of this stuff or I'm going to die. Paint the pictures. A portrait of the artist formerly known as Vic. I read the signs. I was close to overdose like Prince. Picking pill pieces up out of the bathroom sink. Like an armored truck riding a And there's a, a sense of redemption, sort of a glimmer of, of daylight at the end of the record with the fire next time and we could be free. There are flaws in this record. Sometimes he tries too hard lyrically. He overreaches yeah. a little bit. It's a, yeah. an ambitious a powerful record that is very moving in spots. I give it a buy it. Yeah, it's definitely a buy it. I, I think, Greg, what's important about this too is he understands the allure of the streets. We have uh, Chief Keefe on here. He is not uh, repudiating the, the, the magnetism of thug life um, as something that sucks people in, but he is disgusted by the violence it wreaks. Vic Mensa has been incredibly eloquent in some of the interviews he's, he's done, getting into beefs even with other artists, where he has said this issue of violence on the streets in Chicago is incredibly complicated, and if you don't live here, don't you be telling yeah. me what it's about, because I'm here, and I'm going to tell you. Sometimes I wake up and I look up in the sky 
asking why I survived all the days that I could have died. Who am I in my place to contemplate suicide? In those times I tried to remember that we could be free. The ultimate moral of the story is, I'm sorry I ever did that. There is cheating on a loved one here in Homewrecker, uh, nicely underscored mm -hmm. by Weezer with these guitar parts, and, and he's not bragging. He's saying um, he really screwed up. Yeah. And that's my fault, I made mistakes, G. I knew you was crazy, but not this crazy. And I opened the door, I should have known better, but who'd have ever thought should be the wifey and the home record? So there is a self-reflection in the cover of the album, him sitting surrounded by bowls of wadded up paper. He's a writer, he's trying to write his way out of everything Chicago's going through right now and everything he's experienced in his life. It's a really impressive debut album, so an enthusiastic double buy it. And as always, we want to hear what you think. Buy it, try it, trash it. Call and leave your thoughts on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Coming up, the legendary Steve Earle joins us to talk about his latest record and perform a special acoustic set. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. Today, we're going to talk with Steve Earle. I'm pissing Earl, singer, songwriter, uh, originally from Texas, went to Nashville in the 70s, friends with uh, a host of, uh, you know, a who's who of outlaw country music in, the, in, in that era. Uh, songwriters like Towns Van Zandt and Guy Clark took him in, mentored him, uh, taught him about the value of writing songs. You know, this, this whole outlaw country movement that started uh, in Texas and spread to Nashville is sort of an antidote to those slick sounds that were coming out of mainstream country records uh, during that period of time. Here we have a, a, an emphasis on rough-hewn uh, music that uh, merged rock and rockabilly elements with country and uh, put a premium on uh, literate and introspective lyrics, and, and Earl has sort of carried that forward throughout his career. His debut album, Guitar Town, in the mid-'80s, electrified a version of outlaw country in many ways, uh, 15 studio albums uh, later, his latest album is So You Want to Be an Outlaw, which sort of throws back uh, mm. to those country roots. Um, you know, he's had a very complicated life. <laughs> to say the least. Let's put it that way. I mean, this man has uh, has battled drug addiction. He's spent time in prison. 
but at the same time, uh, an extraordinary series of artistic accomplishments. Not only the music, but he's a published novelist, a playwright, an actor. He's appeared in uh, shows like HBO's The Wire and Treme. Uh, and we sat down with Steve at the Goose Island Tap Room to talk about his latest album, which is, in many ways, his most country-sounding record in many years. Most of what I do is pretty country because I still talk like this, you know. So, like, I'm probably nowhere near as not country as I think I am. Any record I've ever made has, has been my experience when I go back and listen, especially when I get some, some distance from it and listen to it. You know, the Dukes has a lot to do. There's been a, Steve, there's been a band called the Dukes behind me since 1982. Um, there's one guy in the band now that's been there since 88. And it was, originally was a three-piece rockabilly band, and uh, hence the cute name. And uh, what ends up happening is, and one reason I make solo records on purpose where I play with different ensembles and did that a lot in the 90s is um, to keep the band from dictating too much, you know, what I write. But sometimes I get a band that, you know, I feel like, oh, I want to pursue this for a while. And I'm kind of reached that point with this record. I've, what I've got is maybe the best it's the best country rock band i've ever been in and um i can do anything with this band who, who else is in the current band steve well it's 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 you know kelly lenny who's been there since 1988 and uh brad pemberton and then chris uh, masterson and eleanor whitmore have been around now for eight years uh, they um you know, they actually they're living in L.A. at the moment. They were, they were, they were, I thought they were going to be living in Austin. It was was going to cost me any plane tickets when I decided to make this record <laughs> in Austin. But by the time I actually got around to making it, they'd moved to L.A. But there's increasingly becoming very little difference between Austin and L.A. Yeah, sadly, Austin, it's weird. I mean, you got to go pretty far south and east to find the Mexican food I grew up on. Yeah. you know, <clears throat> Mexican food is way better in Chicago than it is in Austin. Yeah. Wow. That's quite old. <laughs> Way better. And we are in Austin, so we're going to hear about this later on, Steve. So thanks. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Every real Austinite, though, we've ever met says the same thing. Yeah. No, it's one of those things. That, I mean, look, when I'm, I'm, I, it's part of it's me being old-fashioned. I admit that, that when I walk in and I see black beans, I turn around and walk out. You know, I, I, want, I want refried, you know, frijoles, you know, like just pinto beans with lard. Yeah. You know, yeah. with my, <laughs> not with my pollo and mole. Foodie. No, I want, I want Foodie Steve Earl. I didn't, you know, I I've never interviewed Steve that. once in the last 25 years that we didn't wind up talking about food. I talk about food way too much. Think Remember when you and I time. were both on the Atkins diet? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I I think we better have a song. You're with a guitar in your lap, and yeah. we'll just keep yammering and get nothing yeah, we of will. use. Yeah, we will. So we're so, here live in the Goose Island Tap Room with Steve Earle. He's going to play us from the new album, right? Yeah, I'll play the title track because. Then you never go home 
dollar better listen up kid steal a million dollars and you had to keep it hit ain't no place to spend it in the desert if you did can't take it with you when you go something always laying for you up around the bend everything goes around and back around again can't trust anybody not a lover not a friend your mama maybe then you never know Try to flag a ride, don't you fall down on your knees? No, no, that's already been tried. Hate to tell you, but the only upside is sing a devil out of the blues. Singing the blues, keep on singing the blues. Sing the so you say you wanna be an outlaw blues. Treat. So You Want to Be an Outlaw, Steve Earle, uh, writer, raconteur, actor, and he plays some music. Well, actor is weird because, uh, I mean, I, I was always uncomfortable with that, with somebody putting that, you know, it was, it's all, you know, David Simon's idea of me being an actor. Never even, I, I hated it when, when actors made records, and I turned down a lot of parts in movies when I was way younger and way better looking, but I just kind of... <laughs> Wasn't really interested in it. And then, yeah, but you if know, you're going to do something, working with Dave Simon it was pretty owning great. it. It was a good place to start. Was, well, and it was, I was playing a redneck recovering addict, so it didn't require any acting. In Not much was <laughs> I know I got one more high left in me, but I doubt very seriously if I have one more recovery. So if there's anybody out there that sees that bottom coming up at them, I'm here to talk sense. I don't care who you are, what you've done, who you done it to? If you're here, so am I. The title track you just played, So You Want to Be an Outlaw. Uh, outlaw Country, that's where people's minds go when they hear that word. Well, you, yeah. you were at the ground floor of it. I was. Um, and, and, what, and, what does that word mean to you, though? Well, it's, it's a, it's, the record's as much about what it doesn't mean as it is anything else. A guy in... Um, one of the reasons for making it was, was rehabilitating the term outlaw because I was there. Um, the first thing you have to understand is George Jones was not going to the liquor store at 3.30 in the morning on a lawnmower. There's no liquor stores open at 3.30 in the morning in Tennessee. He was going someplace else to get something else, that I assume illegal. Even so, worse than have, as so the story goes. So singers yeah. did, you know, do illegal stuff and get arrested for it and all that stuff. You know, and, and I had a, a guy interview me in Australia say, well, it was really about your lifestyle, you know, the things you guys were doing besides making music. And no, it wasn't. What it was about was 
it's I, I was there. I witnessed it. I was in Texas when this started, and I moved to Tennessee in the middle of it. And it kind of happened both places. But in '71 or so, Willie Nelson moves from Nashville back to Texas, and Doug Som moves from California back to San Antonio first. And I know he went to San Antonio first because he moved into my neighborhood because I we grew up more or less in the same part of San Antonio, and he. He his, enrolled his kids in the high school I had just dropped out of. But it was, it was Doug, who was on Atlantic Records, who introduced Willie to Jerry Wexler, and that's how Shotgun Willie and Phases and Stages came out. So he gets left out of that part of the equation, and Willie makes these records the way that he's always wanted to make a record. Waylon Jennings sees that. He's still on RCA, and he makes a record called Honky Tonk Heroes. Records patterned after Honky Tonk Heroes more than it is anything else. I just, for some reason, you know, just uh, I've owned a 1955 Fender Telecaster for a long time, and I've always been intimidated by that guitar. It's just up. Uh, they don't. They're like. Uh, they're not very forgiving. I always when I played, I didn't start playing electric guitar until I was 26 or 27, and I just, uh, you know, tellies are just. You know, they show all of your flaws as a player, but I've gotten better. And uh, I just kind of spent most of this record on the back pickup of, of uh, 55 Telly. And mm -hmm. uh, it's just sort of shamelessly channeling Waylon Jennings to the best of my ability, you know, <laughs> through the whole tracking of the record. Hey, my mama could see me in this prison. She'd cry, but she came. She'd want to know if I was learning my lesson. Well, uh, also your uh, 1986 record, Guitar Town, comes up uh, in the discussion. You, I've seen some interviews where you talk about this sort of being a, a, a continuation. Or well, a I was sort of a joke when I knew what the record was going to be. I said, this might, maybe it's the next record. I, I said, I'm making a country record on purpose, but it's an archaic country record. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, guys like me, the way I was raised to do this, I don't listen to too much from anybody about what my next record should be. Um, I mean, I don't, don't read reviews anymore, and I, that's mainly a recovery thing. But when it comes to records, I, you know, people either like them or they don't. There's not much I can do about it, and it's hard enough just to... Nowadays, i got to make a record every 18 or 19 months just so I can get, you know, uh, you know stories written so that I can talk to the same promoters and to buy in a show again a year and a half later. That's what the music business is for me now. So is that is that wearing you down, Steve? Um, it, no. I mean, the point is, if you don't love doing it, then you're dead. It'll kill you really quickly. And um, I learned that a long time ago. And I, I I never expected the road to be home. I always knew it was the road. I was probably a little too comfortable on the road and ran from. 
any kind of real life, staying on the road for a lot of my life. Now I'm out there more than I ever have been, but it's mainly because, you know, I got married one too many times, and it just... Um, are, are we up... Is, is it impolitic to ask? We're up to eight, right? Uh, no, it's seven, and I only... And I married one of them twice. Or that, but then does that count as eight, or is it, do you count it as one? No, it's, it's seven, it's six wives, seven marriages. Yeah. Okay, like, all right. That's right. simple. Right. Yeah. We got the math but, right. But, but in my, in my defense, wrong. Hey, in, sure. in my defense the, first, the first six marriages, including the two to the, to the one person, the were, reprise, yes. were all in the 80s and when I was on drugs. And uh, <laughs> since I've been sober, I got married once, and I was married the longest I was ever married. And... Um, and uh, you know it it uh, it ended. I thought I had it figured out, but uh, but I didn't. And uh, that's the way it is. I got a little boy uh, who is kind of the center of my life now, and um, you know, so I have that. And you know, I was just trying to do what my parents did. You know, I believed that my parents were married until my dad passed away several years ago, and and uh, I, I kept trying. Nobody can say I'm afraid of commitments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or that you give up, easy. No. At this point, I'm, I, I may be, you know, you may be done. Well, I, I, I never say never, but. I like sitting where I want to when I go to the movies, and I get to watch all the baseball I want. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's okay. And it's you know, theater in New York, you can always you can find a single in the middle of a row to anything, <laughs> anything. I don't care what it is. I don't Hamilton, whatever. You can find a single to anything. So. You're listening to Sound Opinions. We're here at the uh, Goose Island Tap Room with Steve Earle. Uh, Steve, you got another song for us? Yeah, I got, let's see, let's do this, because this is kind of a folk song that I'm kind of proud of that's on the record. It's uh, it's summertime, so it's burn season. Yeah. And uh, I fish with a fly rod, so I spend a lot of time in um, parts of the world where these fires are burning out of control this time of year. And, and I see all these young men and a handful of young women that don't mind being out in the, the wilderness with a bunch of smelly guys doing something dangerous for, you know, weeks at a time. But... They go out and fight these backcountry fires. They're called hot shots, and this is for them. I, I'm not sure where they had a song before, but they got one now. And there's, there's one guy in particular, right? The what? There's one guy in particular. Well, yeah, that we can talk about. There's a guy in the second verse. There's a guy named Ed Pulaski, and and there's a tool called a Pulaski or a Pulaski tool, and it's a axe on one side and a mattock on the other side, and it's it was invented by this guy. He also is famous for another thing. We'll we'll talk about it after the after I sing it, but. Well, I'm cutting out a fire brick line, cutting out a fire brick line, digging down deep to the clay and lime, cutting out a fire brick line. Well, I'm a wild pie fighting fool, on the yellow mountain hot shot crew. I can swamp and fail, walk through hell. I'm an EMT and a torch man too. When the wind's blowing hot and dry, and the sparks in the sand just fly. I'll make my stand with 20 good men. Better band of brothers you'll never find. Got their back, they got mine. When we're cutting out a fire brick line. Well, I'm cutting out a fire brick line. Cutting out a fire brick line. Digging down deep to the clan line. Cutting out a fire brick line.
cutting out a fabric line. He invented this thing like an axe I swing. Never left a member of his crew behind. The fire jump across the line, took him down an abandoned mine. And he drew his gun, said he'd shoot the first one. Got it in his head to try and go outside. Got everybody out alive. Till Alaska is a friend of mine. When I'm cutting out a fire line, cutting out a fire line, digging down deep to the clean line, cutting out a fire line. Heaven up above the sky, looking down on me when I'm cutting out a firebreak line. Well, I'm cutting out a firebreak line, cutting out a firebreak line, digging down deep to the clean line, cutting out a firebreak line. Well, I'm cutting out a firebreak line, cutting out a firebreak line, digging down deep to the clean line, cutting out a firebreak line. Thanks. So before there were hot shot crews, there were um, all all forest fires like that were fought by you know, the National Forest Service strictly. And you know Pulaski was just a, Ed Pulaski was just a um, a forest ranger. You know he worked for the Forest Service, and he uh, he I think it's actually before he actually invented the Pulaski tool and, and patented it. But he uh, he's, he was already famous because he took his whole crew about 35, 40 guys into a mine, an abandoned mine, because they got burned over. The winds changed directions. They were about to get, you know, overtaken. So he saved them by that. bringing them underground. He took them in the mine. Those guys, a lot of them didn't want to go because they were from around there, and they knew that when there was a fire, that there's bears and snakes and stuff in mines because mm-hmm. they're trying to get away from the fire, too. So, uh, and, and uh, I changed it a little bit just to get it to rhyme. That's what you have to do, but... Uh, he actually lost three guys out of, out of the, the 37, 38, something like that. And, um, but um, he, uh, he did pull his service revolver and say anybody that went outside is going to shoot him. Wow. And uh, I to, just, keep, I just to get him to stand well, side. I, I was just asking you about it because, you know, number one, we're in Chicago. And any chance to use a name like Pulaski yeah. is a good one. <laughs> yeah. You know, number two, I just, I, the color and the novelistic eye for detail in that verse, I think, is my favorite single couplet you've written oh, since thanks. John Walker Blues. Well, it's, it's Which weird. also always And, and it was me. written the same way John Walker's Blues was. I decided that I was going to write a song about a certain thing. And what do you do? It used to, it, you go to the internet, which is like a library, <laughs> except, you know, some of it's not true. And, and there's you have more. to kind of wade through it. But, but it's, you have it, it's at your fingertips. And, um, I used to have to go to the library. When I wrote Ben McCullough, I spent two days in the library yeah. researching mm. the Battle of Peter Ridge. But, but John Walker's Blues, I went to Islam.com. <laughs> and, that, and the chorus is Surah 47, you yeah. know? And that's what I, I, that's what I was looking for. Was the, I knew that was my chorus before I started. So I, I learned it as best as I could, you know, yeah. like just, you know, phonetically. And, um, and then I started from there.
After a break, we'll have more from Steve Earle, recorded at the Goose Island Tap Room in Chicago, and we will pay tribute to Glenn Campbell, dead at the age of 81. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Hey, pretty baby, are you ready for me? Yeah, it's a good rockin' daddy down from Tennessee. I'm just that often back with San Antonio with a radio blastin' and the bird dog gone. There's a speed trap with my head sound the town, but no local yoga gonna shut me down. Cause me and my boys got this rig on and we'll come a thousand miles from a guitar town. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott. And this week we are joined by Steve Earle. And then the sheriff came around in the middle of the night. Heard mama crying that something wouldn't ride. He's headed down to Knoxville with a weekly load. You can smell a whiskey burning down Copperhead Road. Steve talked with us and played some songs from his latest album, So You Want to Be an Outlaw, in front of a live audience at the Goose Island Tap Room here in Chicago. Steve, of course, is known for his songwriting, but also his outspoken political views. And the new record comes out during a divided time for this country. Oddly, however, politics are largely absent from this album. So we asked Steve about that. A lot of people are shocked that this record isn't more political than it was, yeah. but the truth is, I didn't know this was going to happen. And I went, I went on stage. Um, the songs were written. We were scheduled uh, to go in the studio the first week in December in Austin. I went on stage. I was in, I'd already voted. You know, I, I supported Bernie Sanders until he was out of the race. I voted for Hillary. Uh, I was in shock like everybody else was. I didn't, I thought about doing, you know, scuttling some songs and trying to come up with something political on the spot. I had a month. You know, that, that uh, I finally decided to let this record be what it is. So the next record's going to be just as country as this one and way more political. And I think that's really interesting because it is. I'm a hardcore lefty, and, and, and my, I know my heart's in the right place. You know, it's, it's funny. I know, I know three senators personally, and two of them are deadheads. That, that tells you something about my <laughs> politics. But, but it's not like, um, you know, there is something that happened. It's not the Russians that elected this guy. It's, it's a cultural um, failure. It's, look, reality television does hurt, evidently. If, if you don't believe that reality television's real and Fox is news, there's no way this guy's president of the United States. So that's us not protecting our culture and protecting our intellects. It's not about stupid people. There's plenty of stupid people. They're the ones that you hear, and they're the ones with the funny hats and all that stuff. We've been seeing those people for years on both sides. But... That's that, you know, of course, me being a lefty, the ones on the right are the ones I think are ridiculous. But, you know, that's that's a matter of, you know, where you're sitting looking at it. So when you're playing these songs from So You Want to Be an Outlaw at the Ryman or, or some, you know, in Oklahoma or are you connecting 
with both sides of the I haven't gone to Oklahoma yet. The Ryman went great the other night. Um, you know, Will said, this record, there's nothing for people not to connect to. The next step Yeah, but you got a critical. reputation. <laughs> I do, I do. But the, the fact of the matter is, I'm not... Um, I'm saying the same things I've always said. I'm still playing... I'm playing City of Immigrants every show. Um, I'm playing Jerusalem every show. thing though about your political stuff and I use an example like um, Merle Haggard he got a lot of stick from the left when he wrote Ogie from, from Muskogee including me I mean but, I wanted to hate him and I even though I knew he was great but at the same time he's he, you know right around that time he writes a song about bi- in support of biracial marriage which yeah. could have ended his career if people yeah. had really well no, his, Merle's thing I mean I, I actually talked to him about that because you know I did have this thing about Merle Haggard for a while because yeah, that was an anthem for guys that were kicking my ass on a constant basis, Okie from Muskogee. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take our trips on LSD. We don't burn our draft cards down on Main Street. But he, he, what he saw was the people like him that he grew up with in Oklahoma first and then in California, you know, people like that were, they were going to Vietnam. There was, there was no doubt about it. They, were, they weren't co- candidates for college deferment, so they were going. And so he saw people, um, I, I think some of us, you know, um, you know, people ask me, you know, ask why there was no anti-war movement during the Iraq war. There was no draft, you know, we were draft bait. And so we had a, we had, you know, we had skin in the game and, and, he, that was his skin. His people, they were going no matter what, and he didn't think they were being treated fairly when they did what they had no choice but to do. And now it's different. Now they don't need a draft because there's so many people out there that have absolutely no future and no way to work. They have no place to go but the military. So they, we have had no trouble coming up with cannon fodder for these recent wars. It's just mm-hmm. a, they figured that out. Uh, well, I think the key is with with Haggard and with a song like John Walker Blues, your, your political songwriting is that you develop, you, you, you create an empathy for this character where it doesn't matter which the, the side job of the spectrum is em- The job's on. empathy, period. I mean, yeah. whether it's a political song or not, like nobody cares whether I'm riding around a bus that costs more in their house. What they care about, like when, I, when I, the light went on for me, when I, there's a song on my first record called Little Rock and Roller. It's about missing my kid on the road and missing him because his mother and I weren't together anymore. Go to sleep, little rock and roller. Your daddy's up and knocking dead tonight. One of these days, when you're a little older, you can ride the big bus. Everything will be alright. No, I was playing a benefit with Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings and um, J.D. Loudermilk and a few people in Nashville. And Cash came up to me and he said, you know, I love that song of yours, Little Rock and Roller. It was a very big deal for me, Johnny Cash, to say that to me about any of my songs. Two weeks later, 
I'm in a truck stop in the middle of nowhere, and some, a truck driver came up to me and said, you know, I really like that song of yours, Little Rock and Roll. And then I realized that's what, that's what the job is. It's, it's, it's how we're the same, not how we're different. Mm. It's the universal things in these songs. It's not the, you know, um, it's just, you know, Taylor Swift is doing a singer-songwriter's job. She, those, I didn't get it until, because I, I didn't listen to country radio much when I was on it. But I, had, I was out of touch with country radio, and I was nominated for a Grammy. It was the last one. It was one, the first one I didn't win after winning about three. The Civil Wars kicked my ass that year. And, um, but I was there, you know. But Taylor opened the show. That's, she's singing about stuff that happened to her, but that it's stuff, something like that's happened to every 14, 15 year old girl that ever went to a middle school anywhere yeah. in America. And yeah. that's the job, the job's empathy. So political songs are no different. Now there are, I've written a few songs that are purely rhetoric. Uh, sometimes those are cool, but it's not what I try to do. When most of the time the effective political songs are the ones where you keep that, you make them about empathy. John Walker Lind, that song was written because I saw a 20-year-old kid duct taped to a board, and I had a kid exact. Justin Towns Earl and John Walker Lind are exactly the same age, and John Walker Lind's still in prison, and nobody's ever proven that he did anything. Mm -hmm. And he just he took a plea deal because I'm pretty sure he was told he was going to end up in the general population of a prison and that he wouldn't survive that if he didn't take the deal. He wasn't ever charged with treason. If you ask somebody on the street, what's John Walker Lind in prison for? Treason. He was never charged with treason because he's not guilty of treason. And I just, my first reaction was he's got parents and they must be sick. You know, so that's, that's why I wrote the song. God, if my daddy could see my Chains around my feet He don't understand Sometimes a man's got to fight for what he believes. We are talking to Steve Earle, live here at the Goose Island Tap Room on Sound Opinions. Um, Steve, you're going to give us another tune from So You Want to Be an Outlaw? Uh, I'll probably do. Um, I have, a, I had, you know, I'm pretty sure that I was put here to do this job that I do, but even when you have a gift, you need teachers. I think that's really important. And I had really good ones. I had a couple in school. Actually, I had really bad luck. I had like three English teachers in a row were football coaches. So that sort of, you know, <laughs> ensured that I wasn't. It was Texas. And um, football's more important than speaking English. But um, it was, um, I had a drama teacher that knew what he was looking at. And gave me the right records and the right books. And, and a biology teacher, they have one of the best local country bands. His name's George Chambers. I just talked to him last week. But I dropped out, so my teacher's story being other people. I met Towns Van Zandt when I was 17 years old. And I followed him around Texas for a couple of years. And then I figured out he wasn't going to lie to anywhere because he didn't really live anywhere. 
And uh, I could see him just as easily in Nashville as I could Texas. And so I went to Nashville. And one of the main reasons I went is because Guy Clark was there, and I, who I hadn't met. Towns's way of teaching was like, give you a copy of Bury My Heart at Wind Day and tell you to go read it. Um, Guy was show you how he laid a song out, you know, on a, on a piece of paper. And a lot of people learned to write songs from him. Uh, and he kept writing the last few years of his life. He had, he had uh, non-Hodgins La Boba for over a decade. And he, uh, the first five years, he didn't take particularly good care of himself. He was pretty hard-headed about it. Uh, and, but he was tough. He was incredibly tough. And um, when Susanna, his wife, who was another one of my teachers, passed away, I thought he would go pretty quickly after that. But he didn't. He stayed around, and he wrote a lot more songs, mainly by writing with these younger writers, and they learned a lot from it. And uh, we just uh, we had a wake and when he passed away, and um, we uh, sang some more songs and cried some more. And then when I got home, I wrote this.
What a treat, Steve Earle on Sound Opinions. Thank you, Steve. That wraps up our conversation with Steve Earle. We've got video of his performance at our website, soundopinions.org. Do you have a favorite album of Steve Earle's? Call and tell us about it on our hotline, 888-859-1800. And I dream of the things I'll do With a subway token and a dollar tucked inside my shoe There'll be a load of compromising On the road to my horizon But I'm gonna be where the lights are shining Greg, that is a little bit of Rhinestone Cowboy, the song that I think will always epitomize Glenn Campbell, who died uh, recently at the age of 81 in Nashville. Obviously a giant talent, and much has been said in his passing, especially the, the last years of his life. He was suffering from Alzheimer's disease, which is the most brutal uh, of diseases, and a long, slow decline since June of 2011 that included a final tour and two albums uh, at the end of his life and his career, Ghost on the Canvas and Adios. Um, People know, TV show, 1969 to 72, one of the key musicians bringing country into the pop mainstream. Many, many hits. I want to talk a little bit about him as a guitar player because that's a fascinating legacy. He was age four. He gets this half-size Sears Roebuck $5 guitar Mm. from his parents, and he was an extraordinary studio musician. In addition to being very handsome, great voice, great actor, okay, all of that, um, playing on uh, sessions with artists as diverse as Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Nat King Hole, plus Ricky Nelson, Elvis Presley, the Mamas and the Papas, and touring as a member of the Beach Boys for uh, roughly a year, year and a half, 64, 65, when Brian Wilson came off the road to stay home and write songs. Wilson loved him. Um, you know, he loved his, his high tenor uh, harmonies on the road. Uh, he loved his guitar playing. He was one of the key members of that wrecking crew. Right. Uh, we had Hal Blaine on the show. Uh, you know, a few years ago, talking about that great session crew. Right. The uh, L.A. session all those pros. LA. And when you got Sinatra, you know, here's yeah. the one hippie-looking guy, Glenn Campbell, who looked kind of disheveled when he walked in to play a Sinatra session, and Sinatra looked at him cross-eyed, but he impressed Sinatra. Strangers in the night Exchanging glances Wandering in the night what were the chances we'd be sharing love? Well, well, you know, apparently this boy from Arkansas, with the charming smile and and the great sense of humor, he could he could wow Nat King Cole or Dean Martin and impress John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. He he could go wherever a guitar was needed. Uh, so I wanted to uh, shine a light on his guitar playing in particular. Galveston is is one of those wonderful songs Jimmy Webb wrote for Glenn Campbell. Now Webb saw it as an anti-war anthem, and Campbell was always pretty firmly, mm. you know, in the mainstream and aware of uh, his pop consciousness. You know, uh, Webb had written, "I want to put down this gun and go to Galveston," and uh, uh, Glenn Campbell changed it to "I clean my gun uh, down here in Galveston." Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, there's that, but. What 
shoots like a gun is his guitar solo. Here he is in in the early 2000s. He is still on fire as a guitarist, and even as he had to come to rely on um, the teleprompter with the lyrics of the songs he'd sung a million times in his later years, they say on guitar, people who, who, who worked with him still on stage said on guitar, he never lost that. It was like physically coming out of his body. Listen to the solo at the end in the early 2000s. Uh, uh, you know, this is a song that had originally come out in uh, in the 60s, but, but listen to him on fire on Galveston in uh, the early 2000s on Sound Pages. That's Glenn Campbell rocking out with that guitar solo on Galveston, the early 2000s. Glenn Campbell, a legendary country musician, dead at the age of 81. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to talk about one-person bands, uh, artists who get in the studio and write all the lyrics, sing every note, and play every instrument on an album. Greg, Sound Opinions uh, has a special thank you to the staff at the Goose Island Tap Room, Adam Yaffe and Andrew Gill for our session with Steve Earle. We are produced by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and our intern, Isabella Martin. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. This is Eric calling from Philadelphia. Wanted to share with you one of my buried treasures for 2017 so far. Like you guys, I work in radio and I listen to a lot of stuff, and so I always have a buried treasure that's flying under the radar. The newest thing to catch my ear is an artist from New Orleans called Benny. That's B E N N I. He uh, just put out a record on Goner Records a few weeks ago, simply called One and Two. There's one song called uh, Star Dance that I that I really like. That's kind of cool. about you i was a big fan of the uh, stranger things soundtrack the uh, netflix show from the other year where the soundtrack from these uh, guys from texas really evoked kind of retro horror soundtrack synth, uh, synthesizers and things like that benny does a similar sort of thing but not all of his stuff is instrumental and i think that's what really sets it apart i hope you guys get the chance to check it out thanks Hey guys, this is Kathy from Raleigh. I just listened to your show with the Wawa, and I think one Wawa song that really bears mentioning is Wawa by George Harrison.
fascinating because he was referring both to the actual Wawa pedal as well as Wawa, which was slang for a headache. And he was talking about the in increasingly rough time he was having during the recording sessions for Let It Be. I believe it was Let It Be. And uh, just how Paul McCartney, especially his over-controlling attitude, was giving him a Wawa. So he went home and wrote this song, recorded it with his good friend Eric Clapton playing Wawa, and Phil Spector producing it. And the song that they created is like this wonderful, jangly, loud, wall of sound kind of song that you can really pick up on his frustration. And it really would give you a Wawa. It's so loud and noisy and great. That's it. Great show. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Chad Stocker, the bass player of the High Strung out of Detroit, Michigan. And I was listening to the uh, Wawa segment. And as a bass player, I feel like I just have to throw in there that Geezer Butler's use on it at the beginning of NIB. And Cliff Burton's use of the Wawa title in his solo on their first record. And uh, the song Anesthesia, Pulling Keats. So, you know, can't forget us bass players. We love the Wawa, too. Thanks a lot. Hey, fellas. This is Alex from Chicago, Illinois. I just wanted to say I really enjoyed your segment on the Wawa pedal. Uh, even though it seemed an increasing number of guitarists seemed to kind of dismiss it as a cheesy, nostalgic novelty. It may have been most famously used in songs recorded in the 60s and 70s, like the ones you featured on your episode, but I think if it's used sparingly, it really deserves a spot on any pedal board. I think one of the best, more contemporary examples, although it is more than 20 years old at this point, is from a guitarist that isn't exactly known for his subtlety, especially when it comes to his uh, liberal use of effects. But uh, Tom Morello and Rage Against the Machine with Bulls on Parade. It's one chord, a very simple rhythm, really brought to life by the wah-wah pedal. And it rocks objectively hard. Thanks a lot. Bye. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.